time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. Hey, it's Tracy Silverman. Thanks for tuning in to the For the Greater Groove podcast. We're happy to have you. This is a place where we're talking about progressive strings, getting out of the classical box and taking strings to the next level, uh, bringing strings closer to our popular culture, musical culture. Uh, a lot of young string players are really looking for some advice, some guidance in this area. And luckily, I've got the guy on the show today. Christian Howes is here, executive director and founder of Creative Strings, a nonprofit that's devoted to music education and is the umbrella organization for his Creative Strings Academy and Creative Strings Workshops and his YouTube channel, which you should subscribe to immediately because he's constantly uploading new material, lots of wonderful exercises and demonstration videos to help young string players who are trying to break free of their classical background, learn how to improvise, how to play jazz, how to groove, how to do all those wonderful things that Chris does so easily and teaches so well. He has put out more than 16 albums and, uh, and Chris, one of them that I have listened to so many times, Jazz Fiddle, A Revolution with Billy Contreras, is just a classic. Uh, it's become a cult classic among a lot of fiddle players. Uh, Chris has taught at Juilliard, at Eastman, Oberlin, Miami. He's been an associate professor at Berklee College of Music in Boston, and he's got a Creative Strings podcast, which for all you podcast fans out there, you need to subscribe to. It's an amazing resource for anybody who's really interested in Creative Strings. And he's become a business consultant, music biz mastermind. He's got courses on that. Chris, you are just, you amaze me with the amount of incredibly valuable content Every day there's another video with something to practice, something new, a contemporary tune that kids have asked about. Can you show me this? And you do. You just put it up on YouTube. You make it public for everybody to enjoy. And uh, I think you're doing more for the cause than just about anybody else right now. Thanks for being here and dropping some knowledge. Thanks for having me, Tracy. Always good to connect with you, man. I'm, I've been a fan of yours for... At least a couple decades, so it's it's wow. you know, always great to connect with you. Yeah, man. And apart from all of this incredible teaching, Chris House is one of the preeminent jazz violinists of our generation. Jean-Luc Ponty said so himself. Not only does he teach this, but he really, really can play it better than just about anybody. I remember when, I just have to tell this really quick story. I think the first time I ever met you, I believe it was a Mark O'Connor fiddle camp many years ago. This was maybe 15 or so years ago and i i had never met you before i didn't know much about you and you got up i think with like a trio like a bass and a guitar uh and fiddle and and you got up and you started playing some some bebop or some jazz stuff 
And they're like, oh, that's really cool, you know, really gets around on the fiddle, like psh, up higher positions, lower, whatever, all over the place. And then you start doing these like three note chordal things and then four note like chord, like you're a rhythm guitar player suddenly just busting out this incredible four note rhythm chord stuff. And I'm like, just my mind, my head just blew up. I, I was just like, how are you doing that? And your understanding of harmony, uh, well, anyway, it was it was it made quite an impression, and I've been a fan ever since. Um, so the first thing we're gonna do, our first segment is called the Groove Hackers segment, and this is where we are going to take a tune and break it down and back engineer it and figure out how we can make that work on a fiddle. So what do you got for us, Chris? Okay, so I was thinking maybe coffin dance. <clears throat> Um, but we can go other directions if you want. Uh, but, uh, um, this is, uh, you know, this is a real popular meme out there. All the kids are loving it. It's called okay. coffin dance. So I've got the loop here. I'll just share it with you real quick. Okay. And, uh, in fact, I'll play a little bit of the, the melody. Everybody's going to know it. You may not know it. Chris, I may not know we're, it. <laughs> we're old, so we don't know, but, but my 11 year old, you know, he tells me what it is. So <laughs> my mind will probably like too. This. That's the tune. Everybody okay. listening to this is going to know it, but but like I said, we we <laughs> better <not> me. <laughs> so, so trust me. So maybe trust me. Unless you want to do something else, we no, can't. No, no, no. Let's go with it. Let's go. That's with the it. total groove. So, so the um, and I love your approach to rhythm, and 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 I know that we probably agree on a lot about it. You know, um, about how to approach this. Now, if you wanted to do this, just just totally acoustically in fact i'd love to see how you might do it um but um there's just three chords mm -hmm. and it's d to e to f sharp minor so uh, you know we could even just do power chords right you could just mm -hmm. do that and so that's all i'm doing is fifths right which is open a open d and a e to, uh then first finger and then second finger and so from this, and I know with all the groove, you know, stuff that you do, you just probably like 30 different things that you might suggest here. But, but I also, I also really like to think about the groove from the side of harmonically, right? Yeah. So there's, there's, what can we do with the bow, you know, uh, just on an acoustic instrument, you know, so it could be. Could be something like that right mm -hmm. and then you could add more levels to that but then i also like to think um what about the harmonic side of it like could you could you add more well if we want to make that first chord a d chord we're going to add the third there you know the e chord i'm trying to play that in tune and then f sharp minor so we've got those that are pretty uh you know right adding the adding the third getting the third in there right there's other ways to if we don't like playing it up that high mm -hmm. we could just make it a little lower because you know sometimes the violin might feel a little bit uh what's the word you know what i mean when it's like too high it's yeah like it puts it more in a melody area so it sticks out more yeah right yeah i agree with that yeah because i think we're used to hearing things in a certain range like the rhythm guitar we're used to hearing it lower so if we right. want to get a little closer to that then instead of playing it here we have D and A. We just take that open A string, we move it down. So now right. we're playing fourths instead of fifths. So 
So we could do that as well. And um, <clears throat> or if we go to um, if we go to the loop pedal, then I created this loop, and I can just show briefly some different ways to to do yeah. that. If that's if that if you think that's a good approach. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'll, I'll let everybody hear the loop that I came up with. So what I did, and here's how I would create the loop. Um, you just stop me anytime, Tracy. Um, yeah. <clears throat> the way I would create the loop, and there's a couple different ways, and I'm sure you might have it. In fact, I'm just gonna show a couple different ways. So we could start with just this bass line, which actually that would be interesting to just go into with the bow, right? Because the because the the loop is right. So how do mm -hmm. we bow that? Well, yeah. Well, what you're doing right there, I want you to break that down. What's going on in between those notes? <laughs> well, exactly. That's that's what I was gonna say. How do we bow it? You know, there's something called I I think we both maybe call it ghost bowing. I'm yep. not sure, but yep. you know, and and. You can do it at the frog, or you can do it at the, at the tip, or you can do it with, you know, strumming. But but I'm going to do it at the tip of the bow, and I'm going to do um, two different ways. I'm going to do it with the smallest subdivisions like this. So if I did that and just play the bass line. Sorry. So I'm writing out all those, I guess, 16th notes and then putting the accents where they go. Right. But then I'm going to remove the sounded notes and just let the bow kind of whisper, you know, like like this. So you can't even hear yeah. that I, unless I put it near the mic. So, so how are you doing that? Explain yeah, what so, the process for that. Yeah, so I just take my left hand fingers and I just let them fall on the string. Don't yep. press, just let them mm -hmm. fall. You know, I have big mitts i guess you could use <laughs> fat fingers you know so, yeah pause yeah you know so there's no problem i just let it you know it deadens people say it deadens the string or mutes right. the string right and so then and then the bow you can i guess you can loosen the pressure a little bit on the bow if you want but if i take my fingers off right right what I usually tell people to practice for this, and I know you have a lot of great exercises related exactly to this, the way I usually recommend people practice it is at a relatively slow slow tempo, you do eight on, eight off, and then four, and then two. So it would be like, mm -hmm. you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ghost two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, Goes two, three, four. And then I'll do four, one, two, three, four, goes two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and then two. So then eventually you can start to add in these more syncopated rhythms. And some rhythms are going to be harder to feel because when you accent on the up bow, it kind of throws you off, right? But yes, eventually, yes. you know, and you, yeah, you might be able to speak to that more. But so with the bow, ha, huh, see, I messed it up. I have it. <laughs> So that's how we would do it if we use the the um, the sixteenth notes. What I mm -hmm. like to do is practice rhythms with the sixteenth notes in the bow, because my arm, my body is literally counting for me. Exactly, right? man! <laughs> you have hit the nail on the head right there. People, are you listening to what Chris is talking about? You got to keeping your arm moving is, is what brings it into your body. And that's how you that's how you internalize that groove because we you know you might have great rhythm but unless you put it in your body it's not it may not stay great all the time, yeah, and and, and all of our 
wonderful conductors and, and teachers tell us all the time, you know, subdivide, count in your head. Right. And I think, and I totally agree with that, but um, I think when our body is doing the counting literally for us, yes. it's a, deep, a deeper way of, of internalizing that. So I was yep. doing it with those small subdivisions there. Um, and then um, eventually I don't need to move the bow all the time like that. And so, and this is, I think this is a really an important distinction. You may or may not agree with it also. So I'd be interested in your take on it, but usually with almost any syncopated rhythm, I want to learn it the way we just talked about where you write out all the 16th notes or the smallest divisions, you know, write in the accents. And by the way, use the paper. Anytime you can use a piece of paper, if it helps you to learn something, I say do it. Now, I know there's a lot of people that are going to say, no, learn things by ear. There is value in learning things by ear. For me as a classically trained player, I believe that often it helps me to accelerate my own learning process by using the paper, mm -hmm. reading it, and then until I don't need the paper anymore. And then I internalize it more with my ear. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who talk about learning things by ear or internalizing by ear... They may be people that have always done it that way, and they're good at it. So every musician has different ways of learning things. Mm -hmm. And whenever we conceptualize music, we can do it by our ear. We can do it with our body. We can do it from the page. We can think about the, what it looks like on a staff paper. We can also think about the fingerings. Mm -hmm. These are all equally val valuable ways to perceive or conceptualize the music. Mm -hmm. They're all valuable. And some people are going to lean harder into different ways. There's some yeah. people that don't read music, period. So obviously, I'm not going to tell them that they need to read music if they can right. conceptualize it a different way and vice versa. Anyway, you want to use whatever works for you. But I do recommend if you have a classical uh, background that you use what works for you. And, and there's so many people, this is true not only for rhythm, but, and in fact... The more I usually talk about this more in relation to harmony, because when you're trying to remember what are the notes in the scale, what are the notes in these chords, I find that it is a hundred times easier to have basically like the equivalent of a um, a cheat sheet, I guess cheat you could sheet. call yep. it. You know? it's kind of like if you're trying to learn words in a language, you're going to use um, these, these little flashcards, right? And you look at the flashcards and you turn them around and you check. And it's the same thing with memorizing rhythms or, yep. or harmonies. It can accelerate the learning process. So anyway, what I will do is I will learn rhythms using these smallest, fastest subdivisions. But then, then I will, once I know it, I will do whatever I want with the bow that's going to help me do it the best. So in this case, I'm actually playing the rhythm like... So I'm not playing... Yeah, you're not playing the 16th subdivision, you're playing the 8th subdivision. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and so... Um, once you, you know, so there's kind of a time and a place for everything like that, but I could even play... I might even do that because I've internalized it well enough that I'm able to count it and feel it in my body without moving my arm. Right. And and the and the more that you move your bow, it's so important to move your bow to internalize rhythm, but in some situations moving the bow will get in the way yeah. of of playing more fast or crisp rhythms. Yes. So it's really important yes. to understand like when to do which. Um so um in this case, once I've learned that, I actually played um, 
bass line with uh, pizzicato, and I have a double octave pedal. And uh, so you're going to hear my normal violin plus the octaves here because... And uh, so I'm going to go through a little experiment here about making the loop. So if I make the loop like this... An extra shoes, beat. <laughs> I'm not wearing shoes. Oh, you know what that means, Tracy. I do know what that means. I do know what that means. You're like, you get that spot in between your toes. That's where the pedal, <laughs> the oh button went. <laughs> All right. So, so, well, anybody, anyway, anybody, everybody heard that that could be the, the thing to start with, right? You could start <laughs> right. with that. And that's one choice. But I, I would also suggest. Well, the way I actually created the loop was I just started with this. Ah. And so, and so, so, because I think whenever we start a loop, like in general, right, we want to kind of put the thing that's most constant and has the most subdivisions. Right. So, and, and in this case, I'm literally not even going to play on the downbeat or if I do, it's going to be very quiet. So it's going to be two, three, four. So getting the back beat mostly. Bass mostly getting the back. Now I'll put that bass line. Yeah. Close enough. a little better, but basically that's it. Now what I would do, I would actually do a lot without the bow. I don't even know if I even use the bow at all for this loop, to be honest. And and one of the things I love about you're playing tracy is you do so much with the bow literally like all the rhythm stuff with the bow i tend to use um loop pedal to do things like this is one of my favorite tricks actually Another thing I might do is more of these kinds of swells or percussive textures where I'm playing go dig, go dig, go dig, go dig, and kind of layering them sort of just by feel. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh This kind of texture at the yeah, end of the day, like arpeggiated kind, kind of pits of, stuff. Yeah, kind of pitsy and using that volume pedal some more. Now you could add more stuff with the bow. I just tend to not do a ton of it, um, but I love that. That's a you know that's a great texture as well. So if I did. Etc. Etc. Yep. And so a lot of my um, a lot of my rhythmic stuff and accompanimental stuff it tends to be focused on creating these textures, multi-layered textures using the loop pedal. And a lot of times I'm not even using the bow that much. Um, and at the end of the day, that's that's my uh, that's my uh, that's cool. Uh,
that's that's how I did it. Very cool. Oh, you and, know, and let me yeah. and real quick, I I put I'm putting that on YouTube. By the time this podcast airs, you will be able to find um a a play along lesson to this loop on my YouTube <laughs> channel. If you just look Christian House, and it's 45 minutes long, so I'm calling it I'm calling it Epic Violin Dance Party. <laughs> 45 minutes long, you will ju- I will just be you know wow. you can play okay. after me. And get your instrument, show up, and just play after me. You'll be playing the entire time. It's an epic violin dance party. <laughs> just those three chords? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Coffin dance. <laughs> you, can, you can do it for the, I should have done it for three hours, but I just, I could only do, I only had 45 minutes. <laughs> That's so awesome, man. It's, it's, I got to say, it is such a gift what you're bringing to people, all of these resources to work with, because this is what kids need. They need songs that they know, that they like, that they want to play, tunes that I don't know, <laughs> right? Um, or that, that I don't know either, yeah. <laughs> you know, but you learn them and you get them and, and you know, an hour later, you've got, a you know, an hour-long version of it up there that they can just party with and, and have fun with. Uh, and, you know, I tell you what, when I was learning uh, classical violin as a kid, if somebody told me that I could just have fun for an hour with my instrument, uh, that might have changed a whole lot of stuff for me. You know, maybe I wouldn't have rebelled so hard when I got out of Juilliard. I was like, "That's enough! I'm good. I'm free!" You know, um, <laughs> but this is the freedom that string players want and deserve, frankly. So uh, thanks for for bringing that to them. Um, how how do you go about teaching? groove stuff in your uh, Creative Strings uh, Academy. I know you spend a lot of time on this. It's such an important element of, you know, of, of playing contemporary stuff. You know, it's come so easily to you, but what do you do with a student who, who just doesn't seem to pick it up? How do you break through and, and get somebody who's more classically trained to feel a contemporary groove that maybe they're not even that familiar with? Right. Sure. Yeah. So every um, couple months I offer a two month cycle of what I call creative strings workshop. And I have, you know, usually 50 to 100 people who are part of it who are working with me and we do group classes and privates and stuff. And with every student I start with, what do you really want? (laughs) What do you want for your vision? And um, because I think that part of, you know, what we both came up in, which was traditional classical training, if you want to call it that, everything was already based on a premise that we that that our teachers frankly knew what we wanted or what the possibility for us there was a premise that we were going to go to college and then join an orchestra or play chamber music or do certain things and so the the curriculum and all the repertoire was laid out for us and all the skills i don't start with that I have my students include amateurs, hobbyists, people that want to do this, people that want to do that, people that want to do this or that, also teachers. And so I start with what is important to you in your life? (laughs) Why do you want to play music? And some people say, well, you know, I just want to feel like a part of something. I want to be a part of a community and have the connection that music brings to me. And so for that person, it might mean that they want to go and join an Irish jam uh, once a week or a old time or a fiddle jam. And, um, or they, they may say, you know, I really want to get, um, for more people to know what I can do. So I have more gigs that are more diverse and, uh, you know, so I'm not just doing the same wedding gigs as much as I like those wedding gigs. I don't want to just be doing those wedding gigs. I want to be do other things. I want to interact with, uh, people outside of the classical world. Maybe I want to go interact with people that are, 
a part of, um, you know, this worship band, you know, and, right. and they're, they're different people that are in the orchestra and they talk about music differently. And I want to feel like I know what I'm talking about while I'm there. And I want to feel like yeah. I can, you know, and I play music because it's about sharing my faith, for example. And so I really think it's important to start with this actually. And this is quarter, you kind of devil's tales yeah. a little bit with personal growth and personal development, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole totally, but I'm just going to say, we start with that. And then we say, okay, so you want to be a more, let's say, for example, one of my students says, look, uh, other students, by the way, they'll say, I just want to feel, um, hey, when I was young, I used to play the violin and, I f and it made me feel special or it made me feel centered or it made me feel beautiful. I just want to feel that again. Or I just want to have time to myself, you know, where I get to. And I really start with this, Tracy. I, and, uh, you know, it's it, because adults need coaching. They need, they need, they need um, you know, focus. And, and frankly, and just like kids, right? But a lot of times we are giving kids these presumptions of you need to learn these skills. Yeah. But we're skipping this step of like, what do you want? But as adults, yeah. definitely, or even later in teens, when we really want to start with, what do you want to do? What's going to make you happy? From there, then we can bring it down to, okay, so you want to be more of part of the community. Oh, and and you've identified that there is this Irish jam and you think you'd really enjoy that and you want to be a part of that every week. Okay, so now let's look at the Irish tunes then. And let's look at the scenario. So, okay, you know, what is the scenario? It's an acoustic jam. Okay, so, well, then we don't need to worry about loop pedal unless you just want to do it for practice, right? Or, you know, or something else. Um, but what can we do acoustically to work on rhythm in an Irish jam session? Then I'm going to teach comping strategies, um, um, various ways that they can be um, active in that jam, whether or not they're going to be like a superstar or they're just going to feel like a part of it. And there's, you know, there's really simple things you can do, even literally droning on one string and playing, you know, run pony, run pony to be totally contributing to that jam session and feel part of it and yeah. be also having fun on it. So that's really where I'm going to start. And then when, but some of the things, once we dial in those specifics, cause it really does change a lot. Uh, some people may say, I'm going to use a loop pedal, or some people might say, I don't want to use a loop pedal, you know, for whatever reason, then, well, okay, what about acapella? I just don't like apps. Okay, what about, um, then let's just use your phone and let's record yourself playing to a metronome and let's try some exercises this way. But when it comes to rhythm, <clears throat> I want to talk about all the scenarios and all the roles. So how does rhythm show up in what you do playing melody role? Or solos, mm, how does yeah. it show when you're doing accompanying, whether you're accompanying in duo, trio, quartet, that's all different. Because if, for example, if you're playing in a quartet and there's a drummer, my personal approach would typically be don't ever chop. Almost never. Now, there's a few people who maybe, you know, there's maybe some exceptions, you know, for the advanced people like, like you, like Tracy, that'd be different. You know, <laughs> Tracy can do it, you know, but no, pretty much nobody else, you know, the world. Yeah, you know, no, I'm not I, sure. I don't I trust myself to do it. I'll put it that way. And, and, you know, the other thing is like the drummer gets to be that guy. Like, you right. know, right. it's like you don't have two people driving the car. You know, somebody's sitting right. shotgun, the other person's driving. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and and on the other hand, if it's if it's a duo, then it's like, okay, well, maybe there could be some chopping, but maybe a baseline is more important. So I look at like I break down accompanimental strategies and the basics of accompaniment in different styles and in different uh situations. And then we we kind of look at rhythm from there. But yeah. um and then when and then on the more nitty-gritty like techniques about like, you know, how do you use the bow? Um 
you know, or how do you count? How do you learn uh, the rhythms in different claves? These kinds of things. That's a lot of detail stuff. And I'm sure right. you and I probably agree on almost all of it, you know, frankly. But but did I answer your question? I'm well, not sure. Yeah, yeah, you sure did. Um, but here's another one. What do you do um, if you get a student who's a classical player, maybe a, a good one, a professional classical player, but who wants to play in a Celtic band or a bluegrass band or a jazz band or whatever, um, and is terrified of not having a piece of music in front of them. They're going to be like, there's a chord chart. Yeah, I know what the letters mean, but how do I, wow, you know, where do I go from here? Uh, And of course, you know, that's a lifetime work and a huge answer for, to that question. But if we, if we leave apart the whole question of soloing effectively on a chord chart and just go, okay, you're in the band and you're just going to play with the rhythm section somehow. Nobody's going to ask you to solo. You just want to be a good uh, member of your little community there. How does a string player deal with that? What, what advice do you give them and how do you begin to direct them in that situation? Yeah, and I actually have a, a, a relatively short and simple answer to the question, which is um, I think that what we're talking about is how do you internalize um, musical form? In other words, how do you stay in the form of a certain song? How do you learn the form of a song so that you kind of understand what's going on and you're not just getting lost or just like, you know, yeah. just kind of hearing sounds, but you're recognizing like, oh, we're on bar one now, we're on bar three, and this is such and such chord. So what I recommend is related to what I talked about earlier, which may seem counterintuitive, but I think I really stand by this, which is what I want you to do is, and this is the simplest way to begin, is as you're listening to music, as you're listening to music, a song, what I want you to do is find the lead sheet to that song. And I just want you to look at it while you listen to the music. So for example, if it was if you had a lead sheet for this song, then it would it would show D E F sharp minor repeat and then it would go back. Right. So by just looking at that piece of paper, you'd be following along. Now obviously as you're referencing, Tracy, if it's a, a lot of songs are going to have a more involved musical form than just four bars. It might be 32 bars. It might be 16 bars. It might have a bridge, etc. But still, just having that piece of paper, looking at it while you're listening, because I'm guessing that you're very similar to me, Tracy. I mean, I, I was Suzuki kid. I think you might have been Suzuki or... I or... predated Suzuki. <laughs> okay. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. So, fair enough. And so, but... But I'm guessing that when you were growing up, you heard a piece of classical music. Uh, it might have been like you were in book four, but you heard the book five piece. And you already knew it before you even saw the, the sheet music because you would listen to it. But if you're anything like me, then what you actually heard was just the melody. You didn't mm-hmm. know the piano part to the right. piece. And, and, and let alone, and, and also for classical piano players, they learn the piano parts, but they don't know, they can't read a lead sheet most of the time right so even though they're playing all these chords so all we're doing is we're we're filling in the gaps in our ears and what happens is you know we tend to kind of pat ourselves on the back and our parents and our teachers say good job you know your your ears are really developing which they did but there was parts of it that we didn't hear we weren't listening for so we're just trying to change our awareness so that when we hear that piece of music by looking at that 
that piece of paper and it says it's a D chord right now. That informs what's in your ears. And all of a sudden you become more conscious of it. You start to hear the chords more. So use the paper. Yeah. I know it seems really counterintuitive, but use it. Now, the next step that I would give somebody is, okay, you've been, you're just listening to the song passively. Like you're, you know, you're cooking or you're eating dinner or like you're, you know, whatever. I guess you can't look at it while you're driving. But, but anytime you can, you can sit down and look at that paper, do it. The next thing I would say is just simply play the root of every chord mm -hmm. as in in sort of as like a baseline to mark and 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 mm, reinforce what you're hearing. So right. that would just look like this. I would play D, then I play E, then I play F sharp, and I'll play it one more time. So I'm just playing the root of the chord, the letter name of the chord on the downbeat of the bar. And you can simply do that with any song and if you do that with i don't care any style if you just do that if you just mark that um root note of your you're going to start to internalize you will internalize the yeah. form of the song you'll remember yeah. it because you'll be doing it you'll be reading it you'll be hearing it and then if you just play that bass like a simplified bass line it's not even the bass line <laughs> it's just play the root of the chord and you do that like uh, 10 20 times you know then you're gonna you're not gonna have an issue with uh, remembering the musical forms anymore yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like like you, I think I, w I was very uh, very much a visual learner as a classical player. You know, we uh, even if you do Suzuki at, at a certain point fairly early on, you move onto the music, and you know, um, one way or another, uh, you're going to get onto the page if you're a classical player because that's where the that's where the repertoire lives. Um, you know, it's been it was passed. It was a written tradition that was passed down as opposed to these oral traditions and. African drumming, or in so many other parts of the world, uh, India, Indian uh, music. My point is that as classical string players, we get really tied to the page in a way that is uh, kind of an unhealthy dependence, um, because it's just it's the only way that we're really taught. But I always like to think back to the Baroque era when there were figured bass uh, was written typically into, uh, so the cello player really had to understand the harmonies, basically reading a chord chart and improvising on that. And even the melody players were given a melody, but they were expected to improvise on that, the sec on the repeat, to add scale figures, to add ornaments, to do whatever was appropriate type of improvising. The same kind of thing that jazz players and rock players do now if you put them on a gig and give them a lead sheet. But that is a skill that classical players have lost. We were at one point part of our popular musical idiom, doing what popular musical uh, players do today, which is read simplified versions of music and incorporate our own artistry into that as part of the performance. It's half the composer, half the performer. And it's really gotten weighed so heavily towards the written word being this sort of, um, you know, handed down from the from Beethoven to, to us and to not change a word of it, a note of it. But that I don't think is really the way a lot of music got started. Certainly not what strings were doing for a long time until the 19th century and 20th century where we really kind of went away from our popular musical musical idiom and went towards this written um 
repertoire, a library catalog of amazing masterpieces. And the problem is they were so, the masterpieces are so wonderful, they're so amazing that we we can't ignore them. We we want to play them, but it limits us. It, it puts us in this box that keeps us from doing what string players were doing when those pieces were written, <laughs> which was being a valid part of their musical culture. And uh, so, you know, that's kind of the mission that I think we're both on, uh, is to try to bring these bring strings back to the musical idiom that we were living in, our current musical idiom. I love the way you explained that. I, and I learned a lot from, from hearing how you talked about that. And, and yeah, I guess the reason to add to that, the reason why I say it may seem counterintuitive uh, when I'm suggesting to people to, you know, use the page, to be clear, I'm suggesting that you use, to, use the page to get to a place where you can easily hear Yes, and internalize musical forms because what you're not used to hearing or paying attention to, frankly, is what is the baseline doing. Even if you do pay attention to what the baseline or what the chords are, you're not able to easily categorize that or see that in a longer arc, like in a, in terms yeah. of a whole form. Like you might be like, okay, right now I'm playing a G7, I got it, but then there's another measure coming, and that was only <laughs> bar three of thirty-two. So we need to be able to internalize an entire form, and having that page, I yes. find for my, many of my students, is the easiest way. Way to get to the point where you yes. don't need it anymore yes exactly I, i'm sure if i you know if me and you got together you know you would be like chris hey i got this too let me show it to you and yeah. you know i wouldn't it's, you wouldn't necessarily expect me to need a lead sheet for it right depending on how complex it is or whatever you know and the same thing i would be like hey check this out tracing you and you'd be like i got it you might hear one course or two course but for most, for many of us, I think myself included, to get to that point, not not all of us, and and for not for a lot of players who grew up with that ear training, as you mentioned, you know, I have friends who grew up playing in church, and that's they learned music in church, you know, or people who might have grown up playing bluegrass, maybe they never learned to read music, yeah, and so they're it's easier for them to internalize form by ear because that's that's what they know, um, but for me, it was. The yeah. way that I built my ear and my understanding um, and be able to understand form was by using the page in a strategic way. And so that's the yes. reason I Yes, and you're absolutely right, especially for classical players who are accustomed to to using a page as a reference, it's important to start off with that reference point uh, because it's a map. It's like the map view uh, on Google, right? We're looking at the map view. We see there are four bars here. There's a 16 bar form. There's like A, A, B, A, and you see the map. But it's our job to then turn that into the satellite view, to turn that map into a photograph because it's showing us <laughs> where the bars are, but it's not showing wow. us what's really living in those bars. I love that. <laughs> Thanks, man. Your wisdom in all of this is exactly why I wanted to get you on this show, on this podcast. That and so that you can play our last segment of the show, which we call Not My Gig. And this is a, this is a segment in which I ask you trivia questions about something you know nothing about. So, Chris Howes, the founder of Creative Strings Academy, I'm going to ask you some questions about creative string art. <laughs> okay, awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Nothing so, to do with anything. Love it. String Beautiful. art. Brilliant. So, three questions, get two out of three right, and you win. You don't win anything except 
some very low-level bragging rights. So <laughs> the first question. Artist Marcel Duchamp exhibited an important work of string art at the influential First Papers of Surrealism show in New York in 1942. The title of Duchamp's piece was simply the exact length of string used to adorn the exhibition space in this first example of a site-specific string installation. What was the title of the work? Was it 443 feet of string, letter A, B, two miles of string, or C, 16 miles of string? 443 feet of string. That's a good guess, and I fooled you because I made it very specific. <laughs> I had to try to throw you off. It was actually 16 miles of string. Oh! <laughs> I got it All right, one wrong. Okay. Here's another question you won't know. The, by the way, this is a particularly hard set of questions. <laughs> I don't know why it's just, it just came out that way. I, but there, oh. there will be a, a final, um, a final shootout round where you can uh, win it all in one last. Okay. Anyway, here we are. Question number two. <laughs> in the late 1950s, American artist Lenore Tawney developed a technique enabling the creation of fluid woven forms beyond strict rectilinearity. What is the name for this innovation? Is it, this is a innovations of string art here. Is it A, spherical vector weaving? B, open warp weaving? Or C, fluid weaving? Now, come spherical on, Chris, you know vector. this. You've got Creative Strings Workshop. You know all about this stuff. <laughs> spherical vector weaving. Good hey. guess. I fooled you again. It's actually open warp <laughs> weaving. <laughs> All, the, All right. the, the ones that you came up with are brilliant, though, man. I got to say, I want to give you props for that. I cannot imagine when you were like, what are the options? I'm a spherical right. vector. You got me. I'm going to make this hard because obviously open warp weaving is too obvious. <laughs> All right. One more here. The sculptor Henry Moore. Worked extensively with string. I didn't know this. <laughs> he was attracted, <laughs> and he was attracted to the medium because of its a <laughs> mathematical precision, b transparency, or c affordability. Oh, oh wow! <laughs> Three c affordability. <laughs> oh, I got you again. That was such a good one too. Uh, it was actually here's his quote. There's <laughs> uh, from from Henry Moore. It wasn't the scientific study of these models, but the ability to look through the strings as with a bird cage and to see one form within another, which excited me. Amazing. So it was that. the transparency. Letter B. Yeah. Letter B. I, I was right. I was almost gonna go with that one, but yeah. well, say. But ne <laughs> never fear, because the final shootout round here is an all or nothing. You can win it all with this okay. one question. Okay. All right. Good. So yeah. here we go. Are you ready? This is it. Yeah. This is all right. it's all on the line. Okay. The whole match. Okay. There are three main types of string art, as declared by Wikipedia, <laughs> which evidently I spent a bit of time at. Which of these is not a real form of string art? A 
string painting, B, string sculpting, C, string installations, or D, silly string. Silly string! <laughs> you win the whole match yes, with this yes. big comeback win on the yes. last question! <laughs> goes, takes home the trophy. Woo! Creative string art champion. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Amazing. Amazing. When you brought the glasses on, it brought a whole other, like, level of, like... I felt it in my body, man. I was like, oh, like this I'm, is I'm like really on a game show with like a scholars, <laughs> like I'm like on Jeopardy or whatever, you know, like I'm supposed to know the air. <laughs> getting serious now. We're busting out the specs. <laughs> Chris, man, thanks for being a good sport going along with this. And thank you for, for being on the show and bringing your wisdom and um, perspective to what we're doing here. But mostly for doing what you do um, and what you've been doing for years to for the string community, uh, you're a gift to us all. And for all of all of us progressive string players, I say thank you. Back at you, my friend. Thanks so much, Tracy. Cool. Great to have you on here, man. See ya. Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group. See ya. Groove on.